Good morning, everyone. I have known for some months now that sooner or later this time would come and I would be standing up here behind this podium on this day. And this is the day, and here I am. How many alcoholics in the room? Would you raise your hand? Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. A lot of times the alcoholics don't come to the Al-Anon speaker, so it really pleases me to see all of you here. You see, I love alcoholics. It was an alcoholic that got me here. <laughs> I have a very special affinity for alcoholics. And I want to thank you for being there when the time came for my husband to get sober. Thank you for having the coffee pot on, the lights in the room on, and being there for him. Thank you so much. I am a member in good standing of the We Care Al-Anon group in Monroe, Louisiana, and my name is Aline Ruffin. Hi. Hi, everybody. And if you've never seen a black belt Al-Anon before, <laughs> you are looking at one now. I didn't get my black belt by osmosis. Let me tell you how I got my black belt in Al-Anon. I go to a lot of meetings. I have a sponsor. I have worked the steps. I take commitments. And I sponsor others. That's how I got my black belt in Al-Anon. And for me, that's a design for living that really works. I am also a black belt Al-Anon that absolutely loves the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I love big book study meetings. I read the big book. It is my book of choice. I love my Al-Anon books. They're absolutely wonderful. But that big book, I have a very special place in my heart for the big book. I want to take a minute or two here and thank the committee for inviting me to come and speak at your convention. It's a very special privilege to be an Al-Anon and be asked to come and speak at your AA convention. It means a lot to me. I have learned a lot in this show-me state. Charlie and I drove from Louisiana, and we came through your beautiful, beautiful state. We saw things. Louisiana's flat. We don't have any hills. It's just it's flat as a pancake. And we came to some vistas driving in that were just wonderful. Another thing is the love, the unconditional love that you have given me since I've been here. But I think the main thing that you have given me to take back to Louisiana is knowing that AA and Al-Anon are alive and well in the state of Missouri. Thank you.
know what brought you here. I don't know how you got here this morning, what road you took to get here. Maybe it was a wife that said, I can't stand your drinking anymore. You either straighten up your act or I'm going to take the children and leave. Maybe it was a husband that said, I can't stand to live like this anymore. Either you do something about your drinking or I'm going to take the children out of here. Maybe it was an employer that said, you failed your drug screen. Maybe it was a nudge from the judge. (laughs) I don't know what got you here, but I know how I got here. I got here hanging on to the shirt tail of a commode-hugging, knee-crawling, low-bottom drunk, And for that, I am truly grateful. (laughs) I want y'all to meet my alcoholic. Charlie, would you stand, please? (laughs) Charlie is my hero. I was brought up one of seven children next to the oldest My father was a Pentecostal preacher, and he pastored small Assembly of God churches in North Louisiana, little country churches. There wasn't a lot of money in those years growing up for a pastor of a country church. I had a very rigid upbringing. I guess you can imagine what my upbringing was like. But in looking back across my formative years, all of those things I learned as a preacher's daughter in a Pentecostal church have done me very well over the years. For a long time, I thought that that was the worst way in the world a person could be brought up. But you know the roots of my raising have run deep. And many times I've had to hold on to that upbringing and remember about love and honesty and going back to all of those things I learned in the Assembly of God Church growing up. When I was 10 years old, Some friends invited me to go into Monroe, which was the nearest town to this little country church my father was pastoring, to go to a fair. I had never been to a fair. And my parents said, okay, I could go. So I went to the fair, and these people gave me a nickel to play a game of bingo while I was there. I'd never played bingo before. So I sat down to this bingo game, and I won the bingo game. And I won a set of blue glasses. They were in a holder, and they had stark white sailing ships on them, the most beautiful things I had ever seen. There was not a lot of beauty in our life back then. But I took those glasses home, ran in, and told my parents, Look what I won playing bingo. My father would not let me keep those glasses because I had won them gambling. 
And my mother did not do anything to stand between my father and me to make him let me keep the glasses. So I got a monumental resentment against my parents right then and there. You see what a terrible resentment that was because I'm still talking about those damn glasses today. (laughs) But I decided right then that as soon as I got old enough, I was going to leave. That I was going to get through high school and I was out of there. I decided my parents did not love me. I decided a lot of things that I should never have decided. You see, I know today that when I came out of my mother's womb, there was something wrong with me. I was skewed. I have been skewed all my life. I was not like my brothers and sisters at all. I was entirely different. I was a rebel. I did not see things the way they saw them. I can remember growing up into young adulthood, and my mother and daddy would come to me and they would say, Eileen Ray, what's wrong with you? Why are you not like your brothers and sisters? What's wrong with you? And after I grew older and I began making all the mistakes that I made that brought me here, I began to ask myself the same questions. Aline Ray, what's wrong with you? So I went through my life knowing deep inside that that something was wrong with me. But I had no idea, not a clue as to what this could possibly be. I graduated from high school, and the next day I got on a Continental Trailways bus And I went to Dallas, Texas. Three months before this day came, there was a picture on the front of Life magazine of a car hop working at a drive-in in in Dallas. (laughs) She had one of those majorette hats on and majorette boots with tassels, uh, a very skimpy outfit. And I determined right then and there, as soon as I graduated from high school, I was going to Dallas, I was going to find this drive-in, and I was going to get me a job as a car hop. (laughs) And I did that, (laughs) y'all. I am probably the only person you have ever seen that achieved their life's ambition. Thank you. (laughs) One month out of high school. Now, y'all know I got that little outfit and I put that on. And you can imagine what I looked like in this. I had these real long legs, very skinny legs. In fact, they call me mammon long legs all the way through school and spider legs and all kind of thing. No boobs. But I had arrived, don't you see? I, I, I had arrived, man. I was exactly where I wanted to be. And for the first time ever, I was free. 
I was free of all this parental control. I was free of this little country church. I was free of anybody telling me what to do or what not to do. I had total freedom. Now today, my conception of freedom is entirely different from what it was then. But to me, that was freedom. And I started on a way of life when I was in Dallas that was to become a pattern for me. You see, I could do anything I wanted to do. I had no one to tell me what to do. And I've sat in on a lot of your your AA's open meetings, and I hear you talk about this hole down in here that you're standing on the corner in Chicago on a January night and the wind is blowing through this hole in your gut. I know exactly what that means, and I can relate to that. Because, you see, I've had that hole in my gut all of my life. I did not fill this hold up with alcohol. I did not fill this hold up with drugs or food. But I found something that worked just as well for me. Mood-altering men. (laughs) And it worked very well for a very long time. If one of them suckers quit altering my mood, I'd just go get me another one. (laughs) They were just losers, y'all. Just absolute losers, rejects from society, every one of them. And I would get these guys and I would take them home or wherever we went. And I would try to fix them and make an upstanding citizen out of these guys. After a while, they would get tired of me trying to fix them, and they would reject me. I have been rejected by a lot of rejects, (laughs) y'all. I stayed in Dallas probably nine months, and I came back to Monroe, to my parents' home. And I'd been back in Monroe probably three or four months, and I met my first husband. I'll have to count them. Now, he was a real loser. Now, let me tell you about being a loser, y'all. I know today that the reason I picked all of these guys was I, too, was a loser. That was hard for me to to finally realize that at this point in my life, the reason I picked them was because that was exactly what I deserved. But I came back and I met this guy that was my first husband, He was a manic depressive, and he swung like a pendulum. He was all the way up, or he was all the way down. And in my ten years with him, and four children were born of this marriage, 
I became addicted to what I know today was exciting misery. (laughs) If he was on an upswing, I took the credit for that. It must be something good I had said that made him get in the mania stage. Or if he was all the way down, suicidal, could not get out of bed for days, I would think it was something I had said. I took the blame even back then, in trying to control the uncontrollable. We had been together about 10 years. He worked for a small finance company in the state of North Carolina. We were living in Goldsboro, North Carolina at the time. And he picked up receipts from all these little small finance companies across the state And he turned all these monies in to the home office in Charlotte once a month. Well, one of these days he decided, by God, he wouldn't turn the money in. He'd just keep the money. I had a lot of exciting misery then (laughs) with the sheriff and the bonding company and the absolute wreckage that he left behind when he disappeared with $62,000 of the company money. We had gone out the night before, it was our anniversary, and he took me to a little Singer sewing machine place, and he bought me a little crummy Singer sewing machine. (laughs) Didn't even have a cabinet, it was one of those portable things. And he had $60,000 in his pocket, (laughs) y'all. I wondered if he thought I was going to take him sewing and take care of these four children while he was gone. They found him six weeks later in Reno, Nevada, and he had less than $10 left of the money. The sheriff of Wayne County in Goldsboro went to Reno and picked him up and brought him back to Goldsboro to stand trial. I went over to the jail and got him to sign my legal separation papers. He had a lovely tan. (laughs) He had 16 pair of Italian-made shoes. He had probably 42 Italian-made suits. And I don't know what affinity this man had for Italian stuff, but he had a lot of it. He was sentenced to seven years at hard labor in the North Carolina State Penitentiary. And I took these four children on a Continental Trailways bus and I brought them back to guess where? To my parents. These icky parents that did not love me the way I thought I should be loved took me and four small children in. I got a good job. I could always get a good job. Jobs were no problem. It was personal relationships I had all the problems with. But my idea was to work, stay at my parents' home until I could get enough money together to get what few personal possessions that we had I put in storage in Goldsboro and come back to Monroe. I had been back in Monroe about nine months 
and I met my second husband. Now, y'all, he was a really nice guy. He had a good job. He had a nice car. He had a job that had a lot of perks. He had everything going for him. He was willing to take on the responsibility of my four children and help me raise them. He really loved me. So I decided, well, why not? So I married this man. You see, the problem with this was he doesn't know that I have been addicted to exciting misery. And I don't know that I'm addicted to exciting misery. Y'all, there wasn't nothing exciting about this fellow. He was dull and boring, don't you see? It got to the, well, our marriage was really good for about two weeks. <laughs> I got to the point where I could not stand how this man stirred his coffee. I could not stand anything about this good man. And I nearly drove him crazy. After about six months of being married to me, he decided that he didn't want any more of me. And he left and he filed for divorce. And the last thing I heard from him is that he had joined the French Foreign Legion. <laughs> So now I know that there is something wrong with me, that I cannot choose a right person. Here was this manic depressive, and I go from him to this really, really nice guy, and neither one of them worked. So I decided that I would just raise my four children by myself, and I would never get married again. You see, my picker was broke. About one year later, <laughs> I'm sitting in a bar in Monroe. Some of the people and I had gone by after work to have a drink. And in this bar, while I was sitting there, walked the most exciting person I had ever seen in my life. He was a good dancer. He was witty. He was handsome. My God, he had everything. And he came over and asked me to dance. And I fell in love with Charlie that night. I still love him today. But y'all, if I thought I had exciting misery with this person, <laughs> that was just a dress rehearsal for what was to come. The total possessions that Charlie owned when I met him, he had just come out of a bitter divorce in Florida. He had an old whiskey-bruised yellow Dodge truck, a red coffee pot, a GE clock radio, and the clothes on his back. But do you know that didn't matter? You, he had everything. You see, I haven't come very far from this car hop mentality. <laughs> but Charlie and I hooked up together, 
and we ran the bars. I have drank a lot of whiskey in my life. I drank with Charlie for a long time. We went to the bars. We were sitting in the bars every night. We were dancing. We just, we just lived it up. And I want y'all to remember there are four children at home. But I was so obsessed with this man, so much in love with this man, that nothing else mattered. It was him. <laughs> what he was doing. And we did this probably for 18 months. We ran the bars. And we had fun for a while. Someone gave Charlie a birthday party somewhere in here. And every gift that he got was alcohol-related. He got a whiskey flask. He got a set of bar glasses. Someone gave him a tomato plant and told him he could grow a Bloody Mary plant. <laughs> and when I got home from the party for the first time, I realized that we were going nowhere, that we were on a downward spiral, that we were just nobody's going nowhere. And I couldn't see any end to this at all. So I thought everything out very carefully and took a good inventory. And I said, well, it's no problem at all. We're drinking too much. That's what our problem is. We're in the bars too much. But when he comes home tomorrow afternoon, I will talk to him about this, and everything will be okay. So when Charlie got home that next afternoon, I had done my homework, and I had written down all the reasons why we need to quit drinking. And I ran all of that by him, and he said, um, he listened very attentively, and he said, um, Ellie, you did say we need to quit drinking. And I said, oh, absolutely. He said, you got a mouse in your pocket, babe? <laughs> he said, I have no intention to quit drinking. I am having a ball. If you and your mouse want to quit drinking, <laughs> fine. But I will not quit drinking. And let me tell y'all that right then and there, I decided that I would quit drinking, and I did. I have not had another drink since that day. It was bad for me. I didn't need to drink anymore. My life was in a mess, and alcohol played a big part in it. But I would also like to tell you that I did not get sane when I quit drinking. I set out to make him quit drinking whether he wanted to or not. And that was my main goal in life. A squirrel cage in my mind with a squirrel running in it ran continuously 24 hours a day trying to think of the one thing that would make Charlie quit drinking. And I thought of a lot of things. It would run, and it would drop in this slot, and I would say, that's it, I'll, I'll tell him about that. And over and over and over, I did that every day, telling him what he needed to do to quit drinking. The downward progression 
of the disease of alcoholism has manifested itself in our home. Sick, 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 both of us. He has gone straight down, and I have gone with him. Looney Tunes and Merry Melodies lived at our home. Our home was not a nice place to be. We started playing games about this time with each other. Just silly games, but we played a lot of those. One of the games we played was laying down behind his truck. He had come in from work one afternoon relatively early, and I was on him. I did all of the things that the pre-Allen nuns do. Oh, you've been drinking again. You're drunk. You can hardly stand up. Tell him how sorry he was. And he would, I had no respect for him and all of these crazy things. And he said, um, Aline, I don't have to listen to this. I'm out of here. And I decided that no, he was going to stay this time. <laughs> when you pulled into our home, into our carport, you could not get out without backing out. So I ran out on the carport with no thought whatsoever and laid down behind his truck. <laughs> so I'm laying out there behind his truck and the neighbors are gathering over there. <laughs> I had a gallery probably of 15, maybe 20 neighbors and I was say. Go home. Don't y'all have any homes to go to? Go away. And I'm laying behind his truck trying to run them off. Y'all know, they didn't think anything was wrong with Charlie. <laughs> it was that crazy lady that lived over there. The neighbors never even came out of the house. When Charlie drove up, he could fall out of his truck. They never even came out. It was when I walked out the door that they started gathering over there. <laughs> but anyway, I'm laying out there. we got all these neighbors there, and, and it's just a mess out there. And a yellow cab pulled up and took Charlie away. <laughs> Of all the games we played, he won them all. <laughs> Hands down, I never won a game. And you would think that when a person would meet defeat on a daily basis, they would quit playing the game. Not me. I would just start again with grim determination. Well, that didn't work, so I'll try something else. I worked for a pencil at a barge terminal, and I work from 7 to 3. And I could zoom in on my work and forget about all this stuff and not be obsessive about him <laughs> when I was sitting there. But about 2.30, it's close to time for me to get off, and this knot would come down here in my stomach, and I'd say, I wonder where he is. 
I wonder what he's doing. Three o'clock when I get off, you could set your watch by what I did every afternoon. The first thing I did after I got my car was go by every bar on the south side of Monroe where we lived, the parking lots, that is. I didn't go in the bars when I quit drinking. I quit going to the bars. But those parking lots spent a lot of time out there. I'd go by the first one, and I'd go round the front, the side, back in the back, around again, looking for his yellow Dodge whiskey brews truck. And if it wasn't at the first bar, I would go to the next bar. And I would do that in the parking lots, round and round, until I saw his truck. Put my eyes on his truck, and I would be okay. I would just start driving on home. Now, y'all, I don't know what affinity I had for this man's truck. <laughs> because a lot of times he wasn't where his truck was. But I had my fix, you see, found his truck, so I would go home and start supper. <laughs> Set your watch. Seven o'clock, he's not home, right? So I'd pick up the phone and I'd call the bar where I saw his truck, and most of the time Charlie would talk to me. And the man would answer the phone and I'd say, this is my line, could I speak to Charlie, please? Charlie would come to the phone, and this is his line, and he would say, hello. <laughs> My line, when are you coming home, darling? <laughs> his line, I was just walking out the door. <laughs> and I'd hang up, and I'd be okay. You see, I wanted so bad to believe this man. I wanted to believe he was really on his way home. I knew he was lying. I knew he wasn't coming home. But my insanity and my obsession with this man and what he did or didn't do was so great at this point until I would lie to myself and say he's on his way home. Eight o'clock. Is he home, y'all? No, he's not home. Set your watch. I'm fixed to make my move again. <laughs> so I would get in the car and I would go to the bar where I last talked to him. First, I had called the bar and they told me that he was gone. He was on his way home. And I heard Charlie laugh in the background. Boy, I was pissed. <laughs> so I got in the car and I went down to this bar and I went around to the back parking lot and I walked in. He's sitting at a domino table, he and three other guys. And they got dominoes and chips all over the table. So I walked in there and I got a hold to the edge of that table and slung it clear across the bar. Dominoes and chips went everywhere. Shocked everybody in there, Charlie most of all. And he looked up at me with this total 
astonishment on his face. And I said, Charlie, don't you say anything. I don't want to hear a word out of you because, remember, you're not here. (laughs) So I got in the car, and I'm on my way home, and I'm just exhilarated. I got to go in this bar. I hadn't been in the bar in a while. And I got to see the honky-tonk angels, and I got to listen to the jukebox. And let me talk to you a minute about the jukebox. I love country music, and I love the jukebox better than the whiskey, better than anything in those bars. I love to just sit and listen to the jukebox. Well, I'm not going in bars anymore, and I'm not getting to hear the jukebox. I used to, at times, if he wasn't home by, say, 9 or 10 o'clock, I would go and look at all the parking lots till I found his truck, and I'd park way back on the back end of the parking lot. And from the time the door opened, a person coming in or going out of the bar, I would sit out there in the car all by myself and sing along with whatever was on the jukebox. Are y'all getting any kind? Of- <laughs> but I went in. Messed up his domino game, and I'm on my way home, and I'm exhilarated. I got to hear the jukebox and see the honky-tonk angels. And then exciting misery set in again, and I said, oh, shit, he's going to kill me when he gets home. (laughs) So I went home, and I just sat there and waited for him to come in and kill me. And Charlie came in, and he was happy. Everything was wonderful. And I said, well, Charlie, I don't understand. I thought you would be mad. He said, well, hell no, Allie. That's the funniest damn thing you've ever done. (laughs) Thank you. And he said, besides that, I was 80 points down in that game. Thank you. Charlie is drinking more and more, and he's coming home less and less. I don't know why he didn't want to come home. He had such a nice wife to come home to. But he would disappear, sometimes for two weeks, three weeks, and I would not hear from him. I would find out later that he'd gone to Florida. I think that Florida just had a magnet for him and that's where he would have been. But I never, I, I never knew. And I cannot tell you the desolation and the desperation that I would feel when I lost my alcoholic. I had put my focus and everything that I had inside me on this man, on him. And somewhere along the way, I lost Aline. I was like a feather in the wind. Whichever way the wind blew. I didn't know what to do with myself when he would leave. I was lost. I didn't have anything to focus on. Now I want to ask y'all here and now. Did Charlie do this to me? No. No. 
Charlie didn't do this to me. The disease of alcoholism whooped the hell out of me. And at this point in my life, I had not had a drink of alcohol in almost three years. But I was whipped, absolutely and totally whipped. And when he would leave, I wouldn't know what to do. I had no hope. I was in despair. I had no reason to live and no will to live. And I want to talk to you alcoholics in the room. I don't think that you're a bit different from me. The feelings are the same. The pain is the same. We are affected. Those of us who live with practicing alcoholics are affected totally by the disease. The only difference between you and me, as I understand it, and as I perceive it, is I don't have the phenomenon of craving. I can pick up a drink and put it down. Otherwise, I am just like you. The pain is the same. Charlie had been gone about a week, and I went in my bedroom and was laying across the bed thinking about my sorry life and the hand that had been dealt me, the bad luck that I had had with all these crazy people. And I thought of suicide. I thought I would kill myself. And that would get me out of the pain that I was in. I absolutely could not live with the pain anymore. I didn't want to. And when the thought of suicide came into my mind, you hear alcoholics and alanons talk about this moment of clarity. I had my moment of clarity. Just as clear as a bell, I heard this voice in the room say, Aline, Charlie is an alcoholic. Never once had I thought he was an alcoholic. It had never once entered my mind. I knew he drank too much, but everybody we knew drank too much. When I realized that Charlie was an alcoholic, it put a whole different concept on my feeling toward him. The second coming right on that thought was for the first time I realized how sick I was. You see, I couldn't be sick. It never occurred to me that I was sick. I had a job. I was there every day. I bought the groceries. I washed the clothes. I ironed the clothes. I owned my home. On and on and on. I could not be sick. There wasn't anything wrong with me, you see. The only thing wrong with me was if I just had a sober husband, I would be okay. If he would just quit drinking, I would be okay. It was his fault what was wrong with me. 
I never once thought to look at myself. But I knew laying on the bed that night that I was a very sick person. I was truly sicker than Charlie. You see, I had gone three years in total insanity without a drink, without any medication whatsoever. And anything that went wrong with him, he could take a drink. But I faced all of this crazy insanity stuff, stark raving sober. And I became very quick, very sick. When the thought of him being an alcoholic came in my mind, with no thought of Alcoholics Anonymous, I had never thought of Alcoholics Anonymous, for God's sake. I picked up the phone and called the number in the book for Alcoholics Anonymous. The man that answered the phone told me that I needed to talk to his wife. This wonderful guardian angel got on the phone, and she listened to my sad technicolor tale of woe. And she said, Aline, you need to come to an Al-Anon meeting. There's one tomorrow night. If you'll come, I'll be there. I'll meet you at the door, but that's what you need is to come sit in on an Al-Anon meeting. I didn't know what Al-Anon was. Didn't make any difference. This woman had invited me somewhere. It had been a long time since Charlie and I had been invited anywhere. The last several times we would get invited to barbecues or parties or whatever, many times the police came. We would get in these god-awful fights. Didn't matter where we were. We were just totally insane, both of us. So we had not been invited anywhere in a long time. But this lady said, come to Al-Anon. And nothing in the world could have kept me from going to this Al-Anon meeting, whatever that was, the next night. And I was there. And I want to tell you all about my first Al-Anon meeting. I walked in this room and there was probably eight, nine ladies in there. They had their hair combed. They had nice, clean, looked like ironed clothes on. I believe they had brushed their teeth. I had done none of these things for a long time, other than when I went to work. I didn't care about my personal appearance anymore. I was totally confused because they were laughing and they were happy. And I, I just said, well, this can't be the Al-Anon room. You should all be sitting in here crying. They said, sit down, Aileen. Just sit down and keep an open mind. And I sat down and I didn't care much home with me from that Al-Anon meeting. What I did get was a tiny little bit of hope. Just a tiny little bit that maybe my life could be better. I also took the slogans on the wall home. They were one-liners. I could not have put a paragraph together at this time if my life depended on it. But here was these little one-liners in the room. 
Well, what I really thought was a kindergarten class must have met there before the al went in. But I could understand the one-liners. One of them said, easy does it. And I said, well, okay, I didn't understand it. Then there was one that said, for the grace of God. And I said, oh, well, okay. And then there was that one that said, think, think, think. And I said, my God, what do they think I've been doing for the last three years? I had thunk so much, I had just about thunk my brain out. I can remember sitting in a rocking chair in my living room about this time, thinking, 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 one desperate move right after another, just thinking. And my youngest son coming up to me and he said, Mama, I'm hungry. When are you going to cook supper? And I say, Kevin, can't you see I'm thinking? I was not a good parent to my children. My obsession with him was so great that I neglected my children. I did not physically abuse them. I just, they just weren't there for me. And I was not there for them. You alcoholic women in the room, you don't have any corner on this. There are some Alanons that have not been good parents. And I am one of those. I have had a lot of amends to make to my children. I was not and did not go to my second oldest son's graduation from high school. Because Charlie and I had a party to go to, don't you see? I was not there. And I was not there for many things. My children have forgiven me. We have a wonderful report today. And God has forgiven me. But I was a long time forgiving myself for the neglect of my children. The children call each other on the weekends and they say, do you know where our parents are? They call us their cosmopolitan parents. Today things are well with my children and I am always there for them when they need me. And one of these days, I think that I will reach the place where Everything will be okay with me in looking back at my insanity during this time that I was so affected by the disease of alcoholism. I began working the Al-Anon program. I began the joyous, joyous journey up the steps. When I got to step three, I just mostly gave lip service to that because I took this old God 
the punishing and the wrathful God that I had in my childhood into Al-Anon with me. And I couldn't do the God thing. So they told me it was okay. They said, Alan, you don't have to do the God thing right now. But you do have to get a power greater than yourself. And that could have been anything. A light switch turns on and off. Anything. But I chose that Al-Anon group. It's my higher power. Those ladies collectively, well, any one of them was a power greater than me. So I just took them and I did everything those ladies suggested that I do. I put myself in their hands. I remember them telling me that when Charlie comes back, maybe you'll want to do some things differently. And I said, oh, he's never coming back. He's never been gone this long before. And I'm going to tell you all something that they told me that is most profound. And I don't ever want you to forget this. They told me that it's very hard to lose an alcoholic. (laughs) They said he will be back. (laughs) I gave lip service to the third step and went on and did my fourth and fifth step. When I got to step nine and was making my amends, God made himself very, very real to me. He came to me in a very special way. And I knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that God was, that he loved me unconditionally. Who would have ever thought that God would be hanging out in the ninth step of Alcoholics Anonymous. But that's where I found him. He was just sitting up there, waiting for me to get there. I have a wonderful, wonderful rapport with my higher power today. The spirituality within me is just unbelievable. And to think that I came to Al-Anon not even thinking about God and finding him just messing around in the ninth step. (laughs) We live way out in the country, Charlie and I do. I go to Al-Anon in Monroe, which is about a 30-mile drive one way. And I take God with me. I'm on the road a lot, and I take him with me when I go, and I put him in the passenger seat. I do not put my purse in God's lap. He don't want to hold my purse. And as we're going into Monroe, I talk to him, just like he's right there. And I say, God, did you see that dog? We almost ran over that dog. And God don't say nothing. (laughs) Or I do my grateful stuff. And I say, God, I want to thank you for my Sitco credit card. You see, I haven't always had a Sitco credit card. (laughs) Used to drive into those service stations and get a dollar's worth every time. So I'm grateful for that. Or I say, God, 
I want to thank you for this car that starts and stops and don't run hot. I've not always had a car that didn't run hot. Used to everywhere I go, I'd carry a five-gallon jug of water with me. Sometimes we don't talk at all. Sometimes we just listen to country music. My God loves country music. (laughs) My God smokes, but he's trying to quit. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. The point I'm trying to make is that my God is real. And I love him, and he loves me. We have a wonderful life together, me and my God and our country music. Charlie came home somewhere during here. I came in from work one afternoon, and he was just sitting out on the carport. He did that all the time. Just there he'd be, just sitting out there. Hadn't heard from him in a week, two weeks, a month. And he'd say, um, what's for supper? <laughs> so he'd come in. The only thing that was different this time was me. He didn't know what in the hell had happened to me. <laughs> you see, I'm going to meetings. They only had one meeting a week when I came into Al-Anon, which was 15 years ago. I had 15 years in Al-Anon in May. But they had three AA meetings a week, two of which were open meetings. And they told me that I could sit in on those open AA meetings. They shouldn't have told me that. (laughs) So every time the door was open... At South Grand AA, I was there for my Al-Anon meetings or AA meetings. So I broke into the program with twice as many open AA meetings as I was getting Al-Anon. And that has been one of the greatest gifts that ever could have been given me, was to have all of those AA meetings when I first came into the program. You see, I was so angry at Charlie. I was so mad at him. And I learned not to be mad at him sitting in on open AA meetings. That was a wonderful gift. And as I progressed in Al-Anon, our home became a, a nicer place to be. Charlie came in. I'm going to meetings, and he don't know what in the world to make of me. He did not get sober He is getting sicker and sicker and going further down. The progressive disease of the insidious disease of alcoholism has taken Charlie way, way down. He cannot hold a job anymore. I don't know where he is most of the time. But I've got Al-Anon, and I'm okay with that. I just, uh, I know that maybe sooner or later he's going to get sober, and I pray that he will. Charlie, I went to a few AA meetings early on, but he did not get sober. 
but I believe that his those early meetings in AA, I believe that my God played those AA tapes in his mind over and over again. We talk about a crisis a lot in Al-Anon, that it takes a crisis to bring them to their senses. Our crisis came in June of 1987. I woke up one morning and I was very, very sick with a kidney infection. I went into Monroe and the doctor said I had to have kidney surgery, big time kidney surgery, that I had cyst in my left kidney and he was going to have to go in there, take out two ribs and remove my left kidney. When I came home and told Charlie that I was going to have to have this kidney surgery, I'd always said that Charlie was never there for me. If I was sick or I really needed him or I was down, he was gone. And he was never there for me. And if you would have asked me that, I would have told you again and again that when I needed him the most, he was not there. But right now, before I forget this, I am going to tell you that today, Charlie is always there for me. When I came home and told him that, he went berserk. He physically and literally moved in to that whiskey-bruised yellow Dodge truck. He just got whatever he could get out of the house and moved into his truck. It was going to be two weeks before the doctor could do the surgery. I had to have some high-powered antibiotics. So during this two-week period while I'm waiting on the surgery, Charlie lived in his truck. Two days before I was to have my surgery, he pulled up outside and he blew the horn. And I went out there. I had not seen him. And I went out there and I said, yes. He said, Ellen, I want you to go in the house and get the Bible and bring it out here. I said, well, okay. Why? He said, I want to swear on the Bible that I'll never be sober, that I'll never, ever be in another AA meeting. So if you're hanging around here thinking that maybe one of these days I'll get sober, you can forget it. And he got in his truck and he left. He didn't even give me time to go in and get the Bible. (laughs) So I realized that I am in a serious world of trouble. I've got to go get this surgery. I need to come home and recuperate for six weeks before I can go back to work. And this crazy man is coming in and out all the time. And I had become very frightened of Charlie the last month. Before then, he was just a good old drunk. But something had happened where he had changed, and I was very, very frightened of him. So I called a doctor friend of mine in Monroe. And I said, what am I going to do? He knew Charlie was an alcoholic. And he said, well, Aline, I don't know, but let me have a doctor call you that has a chemical dependency unit in Monroe, and maybe he can help you. So in about ten minutes, this doctor called me, and he said, what's your problem, Aline? And I ran the whole thing by him, and he thought for a minute, he said, I can get him out of your hair for 28 days. 
said, 28 days, who do I have to kill? (laughs) And so it was that I had Charlie committed to the Glenwood Chemical Dependency Unit in West Monroe, Louisiana. I did not do it for him. There was not one thought for or against him. I did it for me where I could go and have kidney surgery and come home and live. For him to go in there and come out sober, for God's sake, was the very last thought in my mind. Hadn't he just told me three days before that he would never be sober? So it had nothing to do with sobriety. Nothing had everything to do with me. One day before my, I was to go in the hospital, the Sheriff's Department, City of Monroe, went into Nikki's bar and lounge, handcuffed Charlie, and took him out of there. It was the hardest single thing I've ever had to do. So he went into Glenwood Hospital, and I went into St. Francis Hospital in Monroe for my kidney surgery. I had been home about two weeks, and he called, collect. He said, Aline, don't hang up. I want to talk to you. He said, first of all, I want to thank you for having the balls to do for me what I could not do for myself. I'm in the right place. I'm exactly where I need to be. I'm sober. I want to stay sober. And if you'll let me come home when I get out of here, I would like to come home and see if we can make something of our marriage. Sounded good to me. So Charlie came home from Glenwood. He got him an old iron-ass sponsor that was there every afternoon. Take him to 28 meetings and 20, 90 meetings in 90 days. There he was every afternoon sitting in that old drunk pickup truck. Y'all know what a drunk pickup truck is. It's a truck that's all different colors and it's put together with bailing wire. And that's what his sponsor drove. And they'd leave. They'd go off. And you know it was okay with me. I had been in Al-Anon six years when Charlie got sober. I knew he was doing what he needed to do for him. He enthusiastically embraced the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Charlie has nine years sobriety. He was going to meetings and he was getting better. And we embarked together on the most wonderful life a couple in the AA and Al-Anon could ever live. 
Al-Anon is a winning team. AA is a winning team. And when you take a couple in the programs, you've got a powerful, powerful asset. And God began to bless us and work in our lives. We began to do service work together. Charlie is currently the DCM for our district. We begin to do the do things in order for us to live the life we do today. We have been places in this program that I could, if I had sat down and thought about it, I could have never, ever thought of the things that God has done for me in the program of Al-Anon. As we travel about the country carrying the message, I have met some of the most incredibly wonderful people, and we have friends just about everywhere we go. We used to never have a friend. When Charlie and I met in that bar, the night that we met back in 1974, we were just two old fools sitting up there on those bar stools. Have y'all ever heard that old song, Every Time Two Fools Collide? <laughs> two old fools collided in that bar that night. As I understand my God today, he had a hand in that. That was no coincidence that I happened to be sitting there the night that Charlie walked in. There's a line in that song that says, And who picks up the pieces every time two fools collide? Well, I'm going to tell you who picked up my pieces. God picked up the pieces of my life. I was in shards. I was broken. Just a broken person. Pieces of me everywhere had been scattered from Dallas, you name it, and I had been there. And the master potter picked up all of those broken pieces and he fashioned this beautiful lady that you see before you today. This crusty old broad he made into this lady that stands before you. Only God could do that. He has been there for me all of the time, and I did not know that. I had just moved away. Well, let me tell you what, I have moved back home. Thank you.